when he writes the book of Acts, there's a structure, a literary structure. So he's structuring the, the message in the way that he puts everything together. And so what we're going to do today is kind of gaze at that structure. And then how do I communicate that structure on a piece of paper? I, so I put it in a couple different ways. So that's why the handout went long. But I wanted you to at least, depending on how your, your mind conceptualizes things, I wanted to give you a couple different examples that as you read over them and see what we talk about today, that you can pick up. Because it's really cool what Luke does as he's communicating about the advancement of the kingdom of God. And so we'll see that today uh, with the book of Acts. It's really, it's fascinating. If you've never looked into biblical literary structure, um, really, you get some amazing stuff when you start seeing what's there and how the Bible writers put the message in there. Okay, so today is mostly we're going to talk about the book of Acts. And it may seem disjointed, but there's actually a, a central theme that's flowing through the entire thing. So when we go back to Paul's journeys, we get a, we get a picture of what's actually happening with God's kingdom and how it's advancing. That'll be our main topic is the book of Acts. Let me just do an overview. This is going to be the entire class. So how, will, how the whole class will flow. And again, it may seem a bit disjointed, but God willing, I'll be able to pull it all together. So we'll do a quick review of last week. That was Antioch of Pisidia, or Pisidian Antioch. We're going to talk today about the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's not what we normally call the book, but that's what I think we should probably call the book, and I'll show you why. So we'll talk about how that Holy Spirit is the animating force behind the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about something that Paul's rabbi, his name is Gamaliel, says, and that contributes to the message of the book of Acts. And plus, it's just one of the most profound things you can find, you see in the Bible, but um, we often just read past it. We'll talk about what the overall message of Acts is and how Luke portrays that inside of literary structure. So he's building it into the structure of the book. And then finally, we're going to end on how do we extend the reign of God? If we're talking about the kingdom of God, and this kingdom is advancing and extending, how does that work? And that'll be what will what we'll end today with the extended reign of the kingdom of God. So let's do a quick review from last week, just to refresh lots of information last week. Um, I sent out later that picture of the, what they found archaeologically, the inscription of Sergius Paulus at Antioch of Pisidia. So that was kind of cool. And then a completely random article about the difference between Catholicism and Protestants as we view Paul and his conversion on the Damascus Road. Was he on a horse or was he walking? And if you've got to read that article, uh, Catholics generally picture Paul on a horse and Protestants picture him walking. And so it's just an interesting way that information flows throughout church history. It really had nothing to do with the lesson, but it's just a fun fact to know and tell. Okay, so last week, Acts, it was all Acts 13. Oddly enough, we started with Acts 13 right in the middle of the book. 
Acts 13 started out by listing the names Barnabas and Saul. Now, we notice a couple things. First of all, Barnabas is in the lead. So they always put the leader first, Barnabas and Saul. And we noted last week that Saul's name is still Saul, his Jewish name, Shaul. So that was, it's important to pick up on that because it's going to change. By the end of the chapter, we see a switch happening. They end up going to an island called Cyprus. We all know Cyprus. And so part of the question we asked was, well, why would they go there? And then we realize, well, Barnabas is from Cyprus. So they go out to Cyprus, and you, you could see that makes some sense because Barnabas would know the people, he would know the places, he would have some support. We noted when they got to Cyprus, they went to the synagogues, and that's Paul's pattern from this moment forward, is you always go to the synagogue first. Even when he says to them, I'm done with you guys, he says that at Antioch, Pisidia, I'm done with you, I'm going to the Gentiles, the very next city he goes to, he goes to the synagogue. So Paul, in his frustration, you know, lashes out at their disbelief, and then immediately goes right back to the synagogue. So that's just a pattern that we'll see over and over and over as Paul is moving from city to city. We noted last week that they meet a guy. His name is Sergius Paulus. Now, if you don't have any context to Sergius Paulus, you read past the name and quickly get on to something that looks more familiar. But this is really important because Sergius Paulus is a high-ranking Roman official, which means this gospel business has implications with the Roman Empire. This is amazing. This isn't just some peasant movement. Sergius Paulus believes. And what, what are the possibilities when you get a high-ranking Roman official that believes the good news? Now, right after Sergius Paulus, we note that they go straight to Pisidian Antioch. And so scholars question, why did Paul do that? Why go in that direction? It's not an easy journey to get up there. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And so the question would be, what drove Paul? Besides the Holy Spirit, what drove Paul up there? Well, it turns out Sergius Paulus is from Pisidian Antioch. That's the inscription that I sent out last week, that picture. So they found at Pisidian Antioch the name Sergius Paulus as dedicating part of the city gate there. Well, that's pretty cool. So Paul converts a guy, you know, we don't know what he said, but maybe he said, hey, Paul, you got to go talk to my family. You know, I don't know how to communicate this stuff about Messiah, but go see my family. Or maybe, Paul, if you want to learn about Rome, go to Pisidian Antioch, because that was like a little teeny Rome out in the middle of nowhere. So anyways, that was just kind of an interesting thing. Then we noted, finally, you get to the end of the Pisidian Antioch episode, they walk out of the synagogue, and the names have changed, right? You have Paul now and Barnabas. So you can see that somewhere in that journey, things flip. Maybe Paul they realized Paul was better at communicating what this good news is all about. Who knows? But you see the switch, and that's important to note, that now Paul's in the lead. He also, by the way, has a new name. And we noted last week, it's at this point in the book of Acts that Luke decides to tell us that Paul has a Greek name, Paulus. See, we say Paul, but the Greek name, Paulus. So he takes his name after the guy he just converted. 
So did Paul change his name at that moment? Was there, you know, we don't know. It's a, it's a full-on mystery, but it's a strange coincidence that in this short little chapter in the book of Acts, Luke switches his name after he converts a high-ranking Roman official, and then they travel to the exact city where that high-ranking Roman official is from. So we could call it coincidences, but, you know, there are no coincidences with my God. And whenever you see things like that happening, it's because it's all there for divine reason. So, all right, that was all last week. So took us an hour to go through that little slide right there. But uh, hopefully that helped draw some context out of these chapters and act, acts that are full of context. That's review. Let's, let's switch now. Let's switch to the book of Acts. And what we're going to do, so if you have your Bible, you can open up to Acts 1. We're going to read a couple different places in the book of Acts, namely Acts 1, and then the very last sentence of Acts. So if you have a bookmarker or something, and you want to mark out, it's Acts chapter 28. You could do that, because we're eventually going to look at the very last sentence of Acts. As we follow Paul throughout Galatia, the region of Galatia, it's all documented here in the book of Acts. So what I want to do today is spend time thinking about what does the book of Acts tell us? What's the overall message that we get from the book of Acts? And to help, help us understand how there's, a, there's actually a flow, just like any author would put a flow to a story, there's a flow to the book of Acts. So here's a couple things, and these are on uh, your sheet number three. The first thing, very important to note about the book of Acts, is it's written by Luke. It's written to the same person that Luke wrote his gospel Luke to, Theophilus. So scholars are always note that you should put Luke-Acts together. So when you go to study Acts, make sure you're paying attention to Luke as well, the Gospel of Luke. Because we go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts, Acts becomes kind of an afterthought sometimes. Let's focus on the main meal, which is the four Gospels, and, and Acts becomes, well, I'll get to that someday because the book is so long, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. But really, Luke, Acts. So there's going to be, Luke is going to write about the ascension. He's the only person author that writes about the ascension, he writes about it twice, once at the end of Luke, and then at the very beginning of Acts. So he's tying those two books together. And we'll talk about the, why the ascension is important at the end. Okay, now it's traditionally called Acts of the Apostles, and I'm going to suggest that we should cross that out. Now, we call it that because we see, oh, this is where Paul goes out, and we find Peter, and you know, everybody's out doing stuff. So it's the Acts of the Apostles is the traditional name. I'm going to suggest that it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And you'll have to go back and read the book at some point on your own. But when you do, if you're consciously aware of how often the word, the phrase Holy Spirit comes up, you'll go, aha, I can see there's something going on behind the scenes here. So if I just do a Bible search, right, you go to like a Bible software, and you do a search of the Holy Spirit, this is a summary of 
where the phrase Holy Spirit shows up in the text. And you can see that for most of the books, Matthew, Mark, Matthew five times, Mark four times, John five times, Roman five times, it's interspersed here and there. But then you get to Luke, 13 times in Luke. And then you look at Acts, 42 times the phrase Holy Spirit shows up in Acts. That's huge. That Holy Spirit is all over the book of Acts. We saw it twice, just in chapter 13, last week, about the Holy Spirit directing behind the scenes where everybody's going to go. So this, this idea of the Holy Spirit fits right into what's the animating force behind the kingdom of God. So the book of Acts, full of uh, the Holy Spirit, you notice there's 96 times in the New Testament the phrase Holy Spirit is mentioned and, well, it's actually 41 times in the book of Acts. The reason it's counting 42 is because one time it's in a title that was man-made. Man put the title in. So, anyways, but still, you're at 54 times. That's over half the times that you see the phrase Holy Spirit. It's mentioned by Luke, either in Luke or Acts. That should be a huge billboard telling us something. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit, which I know we do, but pay attention to it as it things are happening in the book of Acts. So that's why I would say, if we're going to call it anything, we'd call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit did this, the Holy Spirit directed there, the Holy Spirit said this, the Holy Spirit stopped me, the Holy Spirit said go. I mean, it's, it's all over this book, and it's really, it's very cool. Okay, so Acts of the Holy Spirit. Final, and this is what we're going to spend most of our time on today, is the whole book is about the kingdom of God. And I'll show you how Luke tells us that through a literary structure. So it's all about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God has gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and out into the ends of the earth as it's expanding. So that's the book of Acts. We'll go through a bunch of this as we walk through the class today. Now, let's start with something fairly random. And this is going to be, I mentioned this last week, it's Paul's rabbi. His name is Gamliel. And I want to note two places where Paul mentions he studied under Gamliel, but then I want to go back and show you what Gamliel says and the implication of what he says is one of the most profound statements in the Bible. So, Gamliel, if you go back in Jewish history, Rabbi Gamliel is one of the most famous rabbis from the first century. He's the grandson of a very famous rabbi named Hillel. So, if you go to any college in America, large university, you'll find a Hillel student center. Hillel was somewhere towards the end of the first century BC to the time of Jesus. And Hillel is this just huge uh, within Judaism rabbi. And so Gamliel is his grandson. So we note something, this is from last week, and don't turn there, I'm just going to show you what we did last week. Paul says this, he's addressing the crowd, and they think he's a Greek who's come in to defile the temple. Paul says, no, 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 look, I'm a Jew. I'm born in the Tarsus. Yeah, I was born out of, outside of Israel for whatever reason, and there's speculation about that. 
But he says this, I was brought up in this city. I was brought up in Jerusalem. And then he adds this line, I studied under Gamaliel. Now, the moment he says that, the crowd, everything shifts. Because you realize you don't get into Princeton by wasting your time playing video games as a kid. You studied, and you dedicated your life to study, and you, it's like your whole life is dedicated. That's Gamaliel. You don't get to study under Gamaliel unless you know your Bible. Paul wasn't playing club soccer on the weekends. He's in Torah. He's in his, you know, the Torah study group. And of course, Paul was zealous about his Bible. So it's a big deal when we see that name show up. So one of the coolest defenses of the early Christians comes from Gamaliel. So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 5, so it's in Acts chapter 5, and this is where Gamaliel is going to defend the early Christians. We note a couple things about Gamaliel. The first one is he's a Pharisee. Part of my mission over the past few years with this class is, at least in some way, shape, or form, is to redeem the Pharisees to say not all Pharisees were bad. Were some of them hypocrites? Absolutely. But the only people who ever defend the Christians and Jesus, by the way, are the Pharisees. So we have to at least highlight the places where the Pharisees that were acting in accordance to the way we think they should act. So he's a Pharisee. He's not part of the priestly class, but he sits on the Sanhedrin, the ruling council there in Jerusalem. What we're going to see is he's going to stand up and defend the Christians, and the way he's going to do it is he's going to give a history lesson. He's going to go back, right? With you, the, for those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, so he's going to stand up, give a history lesson, and then say, now, therefore, based on a history lesson, this is how we should move forward. And what he gives them is, it's a, it's a wonderful example of wisdom. We're not going to talk a whole lot about wisdom today, but wisdom is it's, it's information, knowledge, plus action creates wisdom. It's not just, I know something, it's, I know something, and now I'm going to act in accordance to that. So it's about, the, it's about the action that comes out of knowing, not just having information. Okay, so if you would look, Acts 5, starting at verse 33. So what had happened was the apostles are out, they're miracles, they're healing people, they're preaching the name of Jesus, and the Sanhedrin is upset. They're emotional at this point, right? You could almost say the mob mentality has taken over, and they're very upset at the disciples because they keep telling them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, yet they won't stop. So it starts out like this, verse 33. It says, when they heard this, now they is the Sanhedrin, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. So you can see they're clearly, their, their emotions are riled up, and they're going to act contrary to the way they should be, they want to put them to death. Now Gamaliel's going to stand up. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, so this is where we see him standing up in that Sanhedrin, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people. He stood up the, in the Sanhedrin 
and ordered that the men be placed outside for a little while. Next verse, 35. He then addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Now, right there, the moment someone says to the mob, consider carefully what you're going to do, you're entering wisdom, meaning don't react emotionally because you could end up doing something that you'll regret later. So, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Now he's going to start down the path of his history lesson. And the history lesson has to do with people who had come before this time claiming that they were the Messiah. So there were all kinds of people who rose up, said, I'm the Messiah, come follow me. So here's what happens. Verse 36, some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody. Now he's claiming to be the Messiah. About 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All of his followers dispersed, and it came to nothing. So, Judaism was not, it wasn't, Jesus wasn't the first person to show up claiming Messiah. People had randomly popped up both before and after Jesus, making the same claim, and he's now giving them the history lesson. Well, look what happened. Once he died, the whole thing fell apart. Okay, that's verse 36. Look at verse 37 now. There's a second, he's going to use a second person from history. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census. This is somewhere around 6 AD. He led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. Next verse, 38. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. Now, this is brilliant. Because what happened when those other messiahs, once those other messiahs died, what happened to the movement? It fell apart. So he says this, if, For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, what's going to happen to it? It'll fail. So if it's of, just let it go, because if it's of human origin, it's going to fall apart anyways. And then comes, this is the most profound statement, but if it's from God, if it's a movement from God, you won't be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. That right there, verse 39, to me is one of the most profound statements in the New Testament. Every time somebody fights against Christianity, they lose. So the question is, the next time someone would, tr- if you were following wisdom, you would say to someone, hey, it's probably not a good idea to go down that path again, because every time someone went down that path, that saying, if the pot falls on a rock, woe to the pot. If a, if a rock falls on a pot, woe to the pot. Either way, woe to a pot, is saying, don't attack this, because if you do, and it's, if, if it's God's movement, you're not going to be able to stop it. And here's where this is going to tie into the rest of the the message of the book of Acts. You won't be able to stop these men. So there's a there's a strain in the book of Acts that is declaring this kingdom of God business is unstoppable. And it's reflected right here, even in the words of Gamliel. 
So anyways, I think to me, this is one of the greatest, like I said, most profound verses because it says 2,000 years later, here we are, right? No one's been able to stop this movement and it's still expanding. So we just praise God for that, but it also gives me, it solidifies my faith that when you see people coming after Christianity, woe to the pot. Okay, so that's Gamaliel. I wanted to point that out because it's, well, it's such a great story in the book of Acts, but, but also it lends to our idea of what's happening with the kingdom of God and how it's expanding. Okay, so the next thing on our, our class is the, the overall message of the book of Acts. So the first thing, as I've mentioned over and over, it's about the kingdom of God, meaning Jesus is going to ascend, which means now he's reigning, and he's going to extend his reign throughout the kingdom. And what we're watching in the book of Acts is how that kingdom begins to advance. And there's a, there's a message within the way Luke puts the book together and the way he writes that is clearly indicating that it's an unstoppable advancement. If you remember when we did the parable of the mustard seed, we compared that, that mustard plant to kudzu in the south, right? Once you plant kudzu in the south, it's unstoppable. The mustard seed parable is about an unstoppable force. Once you plant it, just the smallest seed in your garden, you can't stop it. That's the book of Acts meaning everybody along the way is going to try to stop this movement. They can't. So it's the kingdom of God. It's advancing unstoppably. And, by the way, we always have to set this kingdom against the other prevailing kingdom. Now, this is what we did for 17 weeks in the book of Revelation. Every single thing that John talks about with the kingdom of God has to be set against the context that they're all living in, which is the Roman Empire. And of course, anytime you're going to try to undermine the Roman Empire, the emperors are not real happy about it. So you become an enemy of the state if you're attempting to undermine the authority of the state. So we're always going to have to compare these two. All right, so how does Paul, or sorry, how does Luke, how does Luke communicate this right here, kingdom of God, advancing unstoppable? How does he communicate that? Well, he does it first. There are, there's many ways, but let me just show you one that's probably the most fun, because once you realize these literary techniques are there, as you start reading your Bible, you, you can see them. You can see them pop up. There's a literary technique called inclusio. I, I think we've talked about this before, so it'll be a bit of review. But an inclusio is exactly what the word sounds like. You're including something. People who make movies today do this all the time. It's a technique of kind of framing the movie, framing the story. So we notice, and I put this, this is at the bottom of page one on your handout. I gave you the definition. It's a literary device. Now that means it's built into the structure of his writing. So if we were first century people, we would be paying attention to literary devices. Unlike today, where we often don't do that, we just kind of read straight through as a story, don't think about the literary devices. And also, by the way, sometimes these literary devices don't show up too well by the time we translate them in English. Sometimes the original language, you can see them clearer. 
but it's a literary device, meaning it's inside the text. And it's based on this concentric principle where you're going to begin a story or even the book with material. You're going to end the story or the book with the same material or something similar, and that's going to summarize everything in between. So, for instance, you have beginning material, you have ending material, and, well, here, let me show you another way. You begin here, you end here, and basically what those two things say is that's the summary of the whole story. I'm giving you the summary by showing you the beginning and the end. And this is all over the Bible, Old Testament and New. And again, it's just a way of framing the story to help you highlight the main theme. So let me, I, I put a couple examples on your sheet on page, the top of page two, but let me go over at least one of them. So Inclusio, for instance, I put this on your sheet. Mark chapter one. The beginning of Mark, and don't turn there, but you'll know the story, at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descends and a voice comes over and says, you are my son. So you get a voice, now it's God, but a voice declares that Jesus is God's son. That's Mark 1, so you get that at the very beginning of the book. You go to the very end of Mark, Mark 15, and what do you find? You find the same declaration. This time, though, it's a Roman. So it's a representative of Rome, a Roman centurion, watches the death of Jesus on the cross and says, surely this man is the Son of God. Some scholars see at least seven inclusios in Mark. That's a lot. Now, sometimes people can go inclusio crazy, finding them all over the place, but uh, that one is a clear one. So that you could say, what's the overall message of the book of Mark? Well, Jesus is the Son of God. And as we've noted over and over and over throughout this, this study about Revelation, if you're in the Roman Empire and you're calling yourself Son of God, which is what the Caesar calls himself, now you're at war with Rome. And you're forcing people to choose which one is truth and which one isn't. So that is clearly an inclusio from Mark. All right, so let's get back to Acts. What's the inclusio in the book of Acts? So turn to Acts chapter 1, and in this case, it's verse 3, which Luke starts the book of Acts with his, his greeting to Theophilus. says, okay, hey, Theophilus, you know, I've already given you account of the, of the Gospels. So the book of Acts starts with the sentence, he appeared to them, this is he being Jesus, appeared to the disciples, them, over a 40 period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. The book starts with Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. Now, what I want you to do is turn to the very last sentence in the book of Acts. It's chapter 28, verse 31. So this is the very last thing we see in the book of Acts. So Acts 28.31, this is Paul now. Paul's in Rome. It says, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. So Paul is teaching about the kingdom of God, just like Jesus did. And he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, I had to use the NIV here, so yours might be structured a little bit differently. It might say, with, you know, without hindrance, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. The reason I use the NIV is that word, without hindrance, is the very last word of the book of Acts, which means nothing can stop the advancement of the kingdom of God. So just in inclusio, we see Acts 1, teaching about the kingdom of God. How does the book end? Teaching about the kingdom of God. What's the message? The kingdom of God is basically how, what the inclusio would be telling us about the book of Acts. Now, we'll get to, in a minute, some of the even deeper details, because there's a substructure to this, and this is what made my handout so long, because I wanted to put a little bit of a diagram of the substructure on your sheet. So, within the book of Acts, the book of Acts is divided into two parts. In chapter 1, verse 8, we all know this sentence, but Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So there's the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses. And then it says this, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So the book is divided. The first half of the book, Acts 1 through 12, is Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. The second half of the book, 13 to 28, is the ends of the earth. And you can pretty much follow that, how the advancement of the gospel goes. Because notice last week, Acts 13, we started with Paul. It was the very first time Paul's going out, and he's leaving to move out into the world. So you can see that's how chapter 13 starts. Okay, now let me show you something from chapter 12. So we're, we're going to go to chapter 12, and... Inside chapter 12, because we have to look at the very last part of chapter 12 to understand how this sub-inclusio is working. In chapter 12, we get the death of Herod Agrippa. That's the king, the, re the, the Roman representative in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. So Herod, appointed by the Roman Empire, represents these three areas, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. He dies, and then there's this sentence that just kind of stands out on its own, and it says, the word of God continued to spread. So that's how the first half of the book of Acts starts. Or, I'm sorry, the first half of the book of Acts ends. So turn, if you will, to Acts 12, because you have to read this story about the death of Herod Agrippa. It's, it's a strange one but it helps us understand what Luke is communicating. So Acts 12, starting in verse 21, Herod Agrippa is the king over Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. So he's the king in that area. It says this, On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne. So clearly he's the king. No one's, no one's arguing of that. He delivered a public address to the people, and watch how the people respond. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Now, we've noted over the past so many weeks 
how the Roman emperors are all claiming deity, right? We'll see that towards the end. Well, here's now the people telling Herod Agrippa, your, your voice is like the voice of God, not a man. And he doesn't stop them. He doesn't say, hey, well, wait a minute. Then verse 23 says, immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, that's a quick summation of what happened, but the reason I want to bring this up, the first half of that book ends with the representative of Rome, the king, not giving allegiance to God, and what happens? He ends up dead. So that's part of, again, the way, the way Luke is communicating this. And oh, by the way, if you happen to have a copy of Josephus's writings, you can find the same story in Josephus. So I forgot to put this on your sheet, but it's in Josephus. He does an extended version of this story, but he also mentions how the crowd is calling him a god. And that right after this, he sees a bird and realizes that it's a bad omen that he's going to die. So Josephus adds more color to it, but they're both documented. Josephus or Luke are both documented this story about Herod Agrippa. Then you get this. Look at verse 24, or Acts 12, 24, because this is really the, it's the very last sentence of the first part of the book of Acts. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish, right? You can see the whole time Luke is structuring his book, the word of God is advancing. It's continuing to spread and flourish. So we go back to our little diagram here. You have Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Representative of Rome, Herod Agrippa, won't acknowledge God and is going to die. And what happens to the word of God? It continues forward. Then you go to the second half of the book of Acts. You have that's going to go out to the ends of the earth. And as I mentioned, you immediately see Paul departing to go out into the, to the Roman Empire. The story culminates in Rome. That's that chapter we just read, chapter 28. And the very last word of the book of Acts, as Paul is talking about and teaching the kingdom of God, it's without hindrance. You can't stop it. So it's such a cool picture to see, by the power of the Holy Spirit, of course, how the kingdom is advancing. Obviously, built into the structure of the text. Hopefully this will help. I think, you know, once you know that inclusios are there, if you've ever been reading the Bible, you read a sentence, and maybe a few paragraphs later, you read another sentence, and you go, wait a minute, didn't I just read that sentence? Like, I feel like I just read that somewhere. Well, you're probably running into some kind of literary device. Stop, go back and find those two similar sentences, and see what's in between. See if you can, because you can often, once you know it's there, you can pick up some theme that's going on that they're trying to communicate. As I said, they're all over the Bible, and it's helpful to at least know they're there. All right, so message of Acts. What's the message? Well, the kingdom of God, it's advancing unstoppable, and we have to constantly set that against the Roman Empire, which Luke does inside the book of Acts. We're always going to see that set against the Roman Empire. Okay, last bit. Now, this part is uh, 
we're going to talk about how the extend how the reign of God extends, right? If the kingdom is advancing, how is Jesus as Lord extending his reign? Now, I just want you to know this took me a while to digest. So I'm going to say this today during this class. If you've never heard this, or you think, you know, maybe it doesn't sit solidly with you, just realize I was there for a long time. It took me a while to keep thinking about and process this idea that we're going to talk about. How, does, how do they communicate in the Bible that, the, that Jesus is extending his reign? It's something that really needs to digest and become part of us to help with the understanding. So we're talking about you extend the reign of God. Now, the reason this took a while for me, besides the fact that I'm just slow to the uptake, I guess, is it has to do with culture. So the rabbis would always say, God speaks into the culture of that time. So whenever you see a certain part of the Bible, something being communicated, you always want to ask, what was it about that culture that they would have heard that message? That there's always something inside the message that relates to the culture around it, to help them understand it, because God, God knows that we're limited and have a hard time understanding his message. So he speaks into culture. So what I'm about to show you is a cultural issue that God is going to then use to show you that Jesus is reigning and that the, the kingdom of God, the extension of that reign, is happening. But it comes from the culture, and it has to do with the idea of the ascension. Now, I mentioned earlier, Luke is the only gospel and the only writer to mention the ascension. He mentions it at the end of Luke and then at the beginning of the book of Acts. And this is a cultural piece. We miss that. That God's going to use to show that Jesus is now reigning and the reign is being extended. So if you, if you happen to have your Bible, you can look at Acts 1, verse 8. We've already done this verse, but there's a really important piece to this verse. The verse says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witness. Now, that right there is the million-dollar question. Witness to what? So you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And of course, part of the context of what when Luke is writing is the Roman Empire. So here's the question. Witness to what? Witness to his teaching? Absolutely. Witness to his resurrection? Without a doubt. But in this context, what's about to happen is Jesus is about to ascend. And in this case, where it connects with the culture, is their witness to Jesus' ascension. And because you witness his ascension to the right hand of the Father, which means he's reigning, he now is going to reign, he's going to extend his reign through you, through those witnesses. And all of them, by the way, well, at least the majority of them are going to die of it because of it, because they walk out into the Roman Empire as witnesses to Jesus' ascension. 
Now, why? Why is that such a big deal? Well, the ascension, there's something in the Roman Empire. It's called apotheosis. Now, this actually goes, it goes way back, and it, it's not just the Roman Empire. You see, it's, it's the elevation of somebody after death to a godlike status. And you find it in ancient writings all over the place, and the Romans are going to adopt it. So it's inside the Roman Empire. And then God, through his wisdom, is going to use that, Jesus' ascension, to express the same idea. So it's the Roman Empire, and it comes from this idea called apotheosis. So here's how it goes. And we've gone over this a bit before in classes, so if You'd, especially the one about the imperial cult. You'd have to go back and review that one. It starts with Julius Caesar. So Julius Caesar dies. They hold a series of games. At those games, they see a comet going through the sky, and a set of witnesses testify to the Roman Senate that that comet is the soul of Julius Caesar ascending to the right hand of the Father making his son, Augustus, now a god. So Julius Caesar extended his reign through his son, Augustus. Then what happens when Augustus dies? Same thing. A group of witnesses goes to the Roman Senate and testifies that they saw Augustus' soul go up into heaven to sit at the right hand of his father, which means this, his son, Tiberius, the Son of God is now reigning. The, again, the reign is extended through Tiberius. And this gets repeated and repeated and repeated. Now, of course, in reality, the people started to think, Oi, what's happening? Like, the place is falling apart. You guys are clearly not divine because we can barely keep the wheels on this Roman Empire. But you keep claiming deity, right? Let me show you one and how they communicate this. One of them is Titus. So Nero dies. You have, a, you have a year of the four Caesars, they call it. A general named Vespasian that's elevated. Vespasian is the father of Titus. So Vespasian also got an apotheosis, making Titus the son of a god. Now Titus, when he died, he was elevated, and his brother Domitian took over. So I don't know if it's saying that now Domitian is the next god, or it was off of Vespasian, but either way, let me show you how they communicate this. You guys are familiar with this picture right here. That's the Arch of Titus. It's in Rome. And that arch is built to commemorate Titus, and one of the things that most people know about this arch is Titus was the person who destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. So he because he destroyed that temple, inside that arch is depicted this, which is the destruction of the temple. And they're carrying away the menorah. So that's what most people know the Arch of Titus about. What I want to show you is something that exists at the very, at the pinnacle, inside that arch, right here, is a block that looks like this, and it's kind of hard to see on my screen. But it's Titus, and he's riding on the back of an eagle. And every time that they depict the apotheosis of an emperor, 
there's an eagle carrying them up to the heavens. So you have Titus in the background, he's riding the back of an eagle, and that right there communicates to you that he's been elevated. He's now a god up in the heavens. There's another one, the apotheosis of Claudius. So Claudius has the same thing. It's an eagle carrying him up to... Anyways, I want to show you how prominent this is in the Roman Empire. Because when, when Jesus does this, when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, it's not just for us an abstract idea that, oh, wow, that Jesus is now on the throne with God. It's stating clearly to the Roman Empire, his ascension is real, yours isn't. And it's, it so fits the culture. By the way, let me show you one more. See if you guys know what this picture is right here. That's the rotunda in the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. And the painting is called The Apotheosis of George Washington. There's George Washington right there. So even the idea of apotheosis, elevating someone up into the heavens, is in our Capitol building in Washington, D.C. It's pretty cool. All of the imagery around it speaks to what made George Washington elevated to this status. But anyways, we're not that far removed from the idea of apotheosis. Okay, so let's go back. How does this work in the Roman Empire? Because Jesus is going to recreate it and now say, okay, now you guys go out and extend my kingdom, right? So Julius Caesar extends his kingdom through his son, Augustus. Augustus then extends his kingdom through Tiberius. That's how you keep extending the kingdom. So what does it mean for the kingdom of God? Well, first of all, you could say God is the father. How does he extend his kingdom? Through his son. So that's one picture. The next is when Jesus ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father, who's now in charge of extending the kingdom? His apostles. That's the book of Acts. The book of Acts is documenting how those apostles go out and expand the kingdom. So they're taking on the same idea that once Jesus is up in heaven, you now go out. Now here's what's so cool. It isn't just then the apostles. We, we, don't, we don't elevate the apostles, although sometimes we call them St. Paul and St. John, and we do elevate them into saint status. But anybody who knows the risen Jesus is a kingdom extender. All of his sons and daughters become extenders of his kingdom. That's our job, is to go out and extend the kingdom of God. Why? Because the, the story of Paul in the book of Acts is amazing because he didn't witness Jesus' ascension. He met Jesus post-ascension, yet he still becomes a son of that's out extending the kingdom of God. So who extends the kingdom of God? You do. That's the story. Once you know the risen Jesus, who's ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father, you become then the son or daughter that's now in charge of extending the kingdom of God. And we think, wait a minute. I don't have any power. I don't have any wealth. I don't have any importance. Jesus says, no, my kingdom's not like the kingdoms of the earth. It's not about power. It's not about wealth. It's not about how much land you own. It's a completely different kingdom. So we have to think in different terms. All of us, in some way, become the leader of, of that kingdom. 
Now, the big question, we've done this before, what's our method, right? Because we have to remember we're comparing this to the kingdom of Rome, where their method of kingdom building was this, piety, war, victory, and then we can have peace. So how do we get peace? I stomp you out. And once you submit to my power, then we'll have peace. Now, that's, that's the Roman way. Our way, completely different. How do you? It's about spiritual growth. You grow it, to be Christ-like in holiness and wholeness and in service. So you grow personally. It's nonviolent means. We don't go start wars and force people into the kingdom. You do it through love and forgiveness and releasing control to God. It's about justice, not victory. We don't have to win every battle. We have to seek justice. And sometimes justice is admitting that we were wrong. That then leads to peace. So I think sometimes what happens is throughout church history, unfortunately, the church, in claiming to be the kingdom of God, has actually done what Rome did. Is we went that, that the church, as much good as the church has done, we also have to recognize that the church at various times fell into, like that old saying, you know, the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Sometimes the church takes on, let's build a kingdom like we think a kingdom should look. So just something to think about. So what's the message of Acts? Let's wrap this up. We're running out of time. It's about the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God is advancing. You can't stop it. Once it starts moving, we're sitting here today because the kingdom of God couldn't stop. And we always have to set that against the Roman Empire to say, what's the, what's the context of the, that advancement? So when we see the ascension right at the beginning, it says in Roman Empire terms, Jesus is now ascended to, be on the th- to sit on the throne next to his father. And you now, as those apostles, are going to go out and extend the kingdom as the sons and daughters of God. And that's exactly what the book of Acts does. And, but they extend it the Jesus way, not the Roman way. Paul doesn't get mad and build an army and go back and attack a synagogue. Okay, that is the book of Acts. Hopefully, I was able to summarize enough. So much of that is built in to the way that Luke builds the puts the structure together. And if we don't understand that he's doing that, we'll read right past it. And it's not our fault. We, we just often don't even know that those literary techniques are there. So that hopefully will help us as we go through the book of Acts to see some of these amazing things and how things are advancing and the kingdom is moving. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.